Alrighty, hello everybody. Uh, welcome to a somewhat late night edition of the Colin podcast episode. I contemplated whether to hold this earlier in the day and thought that maybe I would be competing with the NFL championship games or divisional league championships, whatever you call them. Uh, maybe that was thinking a little too hard about it or overthinking it, uh, but nonetheless, thought maybe for those who are uh, mild night owls, such as myself, might want to engage in a discussion somewhat later than normal. Um, I'm going to do a bit of an introduction just based on some of my recent observations about this Ukraine situation and particularly the U.S.'s role. And then uh, anybody else who has thoughts, please chime in. And I also want to kind of preface this by saying I don't purport to be any kind of expert, notwithstanding the cheeky name of this uh, show, Gathering of Experts, uh, on Ukraine, right? I can't speak the native language. I don't have an intense familiarity with the kind of nuances of the political or military landscape there. Uh, many of the cultural dimensions are somewhat alien to me. So I can't opine with any authority really on the inner workings of Ukraine, although I will at least strive this coming week to have another episode with somebody who does have more firsthand experience in Ukraine. So look forward to that if you're interested. But what I can claim, you know, some measure of expertise, I wouldn't even call it expertise, but some measure of awareness or informational competence on is the workings of the U.S. government and the U.S. society. Uh, U.S. kind of cultural dynamics vis-a-vis foreign conflicts or potential foreign conflicts. So uh, that's the element of this that I choose to focus on. And as the world's leading hegemonic power for at least another decade or so, (laughs) um, the U.S. does play an extraordinarily outsized role in all manner of foreign conflicts around the world. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Just in this past year, right, or even just this past six months, we've had genuine efforts to gin up the U.S. government taking a military response, meaning either invading or attacking three separate areas in totally different parts of the world. And I'm not saying that an invasion or a U.S.-led invasion was necessarily likely in any one of these cases, but just think of the extraordinary breadth and scope of U.S. military uh, power and the U.S. kind of global influence that we had in the summer of 2021 a push on the part of some didn't really get anywhere, but a push on the sum for the U.S. to invade Cuba. Okay? Um, the U.S. did take other efforts beyond a direct military intervention because that would have clearly been just so comically disastrous that it wasn't seriously contemplated and didn't gain traction. In Congress or in the executive branch, and I, I covered that at the time if you're interested on my, my sub-stack. Um, so but you have Cuba. Then there was a flare-up around how supposedly a Chinese invasion of Taiwan was imminent and that the U.S. must take a more active role in potentially thwarting that. And it was then revealed that there are certain U.S. military forces deployed to Taiwan and quote-unquote training roles, whatever that exactly entails, we don't have a full picture of. And uh, then there's this Ukraine (laughs) matter, which, again, 
it's not being claimed that the U.S. is necessarily going to do a full-scale invasion itself, but clearly it has such interoperability with Ukraine that the U.S. would necessarily become a, effectively a co-combatant in any forthcoming war. And then on top of that, as I, I slipped my mind, there's always a looming threat or claimed threat of some kind of conflict involving Iran. So just, those are radically different parts of the world where the U.S. has a direct hand in kind of dictating conflicts of this kind. So it's a really a historically anomalous situation to live in a country that has that kind of power, and I don't think it's going to be lasting forever. Um, so therefore, like, I, I almost feel a bit of a journalistic and even kind of citizenship obligation to, to the extent I can, focus on these dynamics. Um, that's basically the, the pat answer I give when people ask me why am I maybe somewhat more than usual uh, in the meeting on, on foreign policy. Because so much foreign policy coverage is so bad. That's another reason. Anyway, um, so as the Ukraine situation seems to intensify, at least that's the way it's being portrayed to U.S. audiences, there was a truly incredible press conference that the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, gave on Friday. And if you weren't aware of this press conference or you don't know what was said there, I would actually recommend, if you have an interest in this topic, to go listen to the full thing. It's uh, pretty interesting. But Zelensky led with really a remarkable statement. He led with a rather forceful rebuke. I mean, forceful in terms of the diplomatic language that he was using. A forceful rebuke of both the U.S. government and the U.S. media for creating what he called a panic as regards an allegedly imminent invasion by Russia of Ukraine. He said, quote, We do not see a bigger escalation than there has been before. Yes, the number of troops has gone up, but I was talking about this in early 2021 when there were drills. I don't think the situation is more intense than it was at that time. So what is he saying there? He is saying that when Russia conducted military exercises in this same vicinity a year ago, there was not anything like the same claim that a threat was uh, a threat of uh, invasion was a real thing. He, in fact, is downplaying the severity of the situation by saying that it's roughly the same as what happened a year ago. And I don't know about you, but I didn't, don't remember kind of five-alarm fire media coverage of the Russian military exercises that occurred around a year ago. I doubt that you probably even heard of them. I was maybe faintly aware of them, but I'll admit it wasn't forefront on my radar. Uh, that's because... You know, it wasn't tied to any supposedly looming Russian invasion and therefore didn't register as a hot-button item in the U.S. media landscape. Now, Zelensky goes on. He says, there was no such coverage at that time of Ukraine. Well, he's right. There was no such coverage equivalent to what we're seeing now a year ago when he's saying, meaning Zelensky is saying, the situation was virtually identical. Odd, don't you think? he goes on to kind of clarify what he believes is the source of this misperception. He says of um, Biden, 
Quote, I'm not saying he's influencing American media. They're independent. But the media policy there has to be very well balanced. Well, he is... What, that's Zelensky, more or less. And, you know, there's a bit of a complication here because I don't have the... I have an English translation that was being used. So I don't know if I'm really picking up on the full kind of maybe complexity or uh, kind of tone of his statements. But when he's saying that Biden isn't influencing the American uh, media and they're independent, well, he's saying that he is influencing the American media, meaning Biden. So in other words, Zelensky is insinuating that Biden's statements on this subject have influenced or the Biden administration's subject on this, this uh, statements on this subject have influenced the tenor of coverage in the U.S., which is obviously true. And um, Zelensky continues, the media policy there has to be very well balanced, meaning he's saying that the po- coverage in the U.S. of the Ukraine-Russia situation is not balanced, imbalanced, he's saying it is. The image that the mass media creates is that we have troops on the roads, we have mobilization, we have people leaving. We don't need this panic, Zelensky says. He further notes that certain high-level officials, doesn't say Biden by name, but the clear indication is Biden, because Biden said, Biden outright predicted at the press conference 10 days ago that Putin was going to invade Ukraine. I mean, that's a dramatic thing to do for the U.S. president and kind of just upends the entire situation. If you're living in some country and the U.S. president predicts with seeming certitude that another country is going to be invading you, well, that kind of is a big deal and kind of alters the dynamics of whatever the situation is. Um, And Zelensky says that those kinds of predictions are, quote, not even using diplomatic language. So they're causing panic in his mind. I mean, this is actually a, a very lightly veiled repudiation of so much media coverage and kind of government official chatter on this subject. And remember, it's even more damning, even more indicting, coming from Zelensky, who is, you know, a recipient, a well eager recipient of huge amounts of foreign military aid, and particularly from the U.S., now, I think the word aid tends to be a misnomer because, you know, aid to me has a bit of a connotation of, you know, it's kind of benevolent, uplifting provision of items like food or medical supplies in a humanitarian situation. Shipping off, you know, missile systems uh, or missiles, uh, period, manufactured in the U.S. by Raytheon, it doesn't truly strike me as the typical thing associated with, quote, aid, but that's sort of a semantic issue. Um, and so for Zelensky to be condemning the media and government-fed narrative in the way that he is, given his standing as a, you know, an ally of the U.S., a recipient of these arms, um, and being the country that would get invaded, supposedly, should, I think, emphasize to outside observers how distorted he does view the situation as being as a result of the U.S. media's treatment and the U.S. government's kind of provocations, if you want to put it that way. Um, Because think about it. (laughs) Why is the U.S. government and why is the U.S. media more alarmist or more kind of in a frenzy about a potential invasion 
of Ukraine than Ukraine itself. I mean, does that strike you as odd? It should. It should raise a few red flags, I would think. It's like if the U.S. was blasé about a potential invasion from some other country uh, compared to country number two, which is saying, hey, you should be so scared about country number one invading you. I mean, it wouldn't really make any sense. And yet that is apparently the current situation. Now, one thing that you'll see in the U.S. commentary on the subject of Zelensky's statements here is that, oh, you shouldn't take it at face value what he's saying. Because he has to play these dual roles where on the one hand he's kind of placating maybe political discontent in Ukraine. Uh, He has to project confidence. He has to calm the markets and so on and so forth. Though maybe all that's true to some degree, although I don't know how the markets would be calmer in the event of an invasion, right? So, like, you know, why would he be so concerned about calming the markets now if an invasion could happen imminently and that would be even more of an economic disruption. But leaving that aside, you know, whatever his second, his ulterior motives or his secondary kind of uh, motivations may be, why is it that we're instructed to be so, you know, skeptical of Zelensky's reading on this situation, or at least his public reading, yet we have no cautioning of skepticism regarding American officials' pronouncements. I mean, every day now, it's sort of bizarre on TV and on other media venues, social media, everywhere, press conferences, we have U.S. politicians going up on stage, senators, everybody, the president, and uh, making the most kind of provocative and belligerent statements about what Russia is purportedly doing in Ukraine, and yet, you know, we're not supposed to have any skeptical attitude toward whatever their ulterior motives might be. And what might those ulterior motives be? Well, I mean, a lot of people, I think, present the reasonable hypothesis that there could be a financial motive involved in that, you know, many of these politicians come from districts where weapons are manufactured. I mean, the Raytheon is headquartered actually in Massachusetts, and you have, it's a big boondoggle um, for kind of their constituents. I think that's always a dynamic with regard to U.S. military policy, so it might not be dispositive here, but it's one thing. It's one potential ulterior motive, right? Another potential ulterior motive is that uh, the Democrats in particular over the past five years have been radicalized around the issue of Russia such that it's politically untenable for them to take out a more, quote, dovish position on Russia today because they view Russia as responsible for installing the greatest kind of fascist menace or whatever in history in the form of Donald Trump in 2016, um, other ulterior motives could be just the kind of grandiose ideological delusions. You have Rob Portman, who's the senator, Republican senator from Ohio on the Sunday TV shows today, uh, kind of proclaiming how now Ukraine represents kind of the last battleground for freedom in the, in the world, and we all have to be united in you know, protecting freedom in the form of Ukraine. So kind of imputing these symbolic kind of uh, dimensions onto Ukraine. So those could all be potential ulterior motives in a sense, and yet we're not advised to take those statements with the same level of skepticism that we're now taking, we're not told to take Zelensky's statements with. And Zelensky says that it's not just his surmise that uh, the threat is being inflated. He's saying, he actually said at that press conference that he's getting information from his intelligence sources, his intelligence services, that you see kind of ordinary troop rotations 
at these Russia uh, military buildups along the in, in the region that indicate uh, an ordinary exercise to indicate that there will not be an invasion. Okay, um, so I don't know. Seems like he might have some decent information in that regard. I mean, Russia adamantly denies that they're planning to invade, and you know. So I would just be wary of that discrepancy in terms of who to treat skeptically and who not to. Um, and and just in terms of uh, another issue, okay. One thing that's totally missing in the coverage of this subject is that the U.S. constantly is running major military exercises all over the world. There was a giant one in the Pacific this past summer, um, and these barely even register on the U.S. media radar. Few people even know what a military exercise is or are aware that they happen. And um, when Putin sat down for an interview with NBC News in June, the issue of the 2021s, the buildup that happened a year ago on the Ukrainian border and the, or in that vicinity, was presented to him by the uh, reporter for NBC who clearly thought that he was you know, doing, uh, getting a scoop of a lifetime by being sort of pointlessly antagonistic toward Putin, not that you shouldn't be antagonistic as a journalist, but it just seemed like he was kind of parroting a lot of very trite orthodoxies to kind of get a rise out of Putin. And by the way, could you imagine Biden sitting down for a protracted TV interview with a Russian media source? I tend to doubt it. Um, but here's what Kier Simmons, who is the NBC correspondent, says in the interview with Putin from June of last year. He says, quote, in the, in the case of neighboring Ukraine, earlier this year, the European Union said you had more than 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. Was that an attempt to get Washington's attention? Well, first of all, when we're being told that the 100,000 plus troops, so roughly a similar number, that are amassed today indicates an invasion, why weren't we told that a year ago when it was the same number of troops that were amassed? Um, now, there will be, kind of, there'll be explanation for that, meaning they're in slightly different positioning and there are different shipments of uh, potential arms and, you know, troop movements and such, which, okay, maybe they're, it's not 100% the same, but it's comparable enough that it's odd, it would seem, that a major military exercise a year ago didn't arouse the same level of alarmism. Uh, but anyway, Keir Simmons asks Putin, was that an attempt to get Washington's attention? And Putin responds... Um, look, first, Ukraine is itself constantly, and I think still doing that, meaning military exercises, by bringing personnel and military equipment to the conflict area in the southeast of Ukraine, Donbass. Two, is that we conduct exercises in our territory and not just in the south of the Russian Federation, but also in the far east and in the north, in the Arctic. He says, simultaneously, military exercises were being held in different parts of the Russian Federation. And at the very same time, the U.S. was conducting its own military exercises in Alaska. Do you know about anything about that? about that? Probably not, but I'll tell you, I do know. And that's in direct proximity to our borders. But that's in your territory, on your land. Now, did you know... I looked that up just to verify what he was saying, and it's true. There was a military exercise in Alaska in that time period called um, Northern Edge, Operation Northern Edge, 
in uh, Alaska, which is a biannual military exercise that the U.S. military runs in Alaska, which, you know, parts of Alaska are actually very much in the vicinity of the U.S. The U.S. had kind of joint operations uh, or communication lines with Russia during the Cold War, with the Soviet Union, rather, during the Cold War uh, on some of these, you know, Aleutian Islands and such that are very much close to to, uh, Russian territory. Um, And so... You know, that military exercise is such an afterthought that most, not even, it's not even an afterthought. Most people are not even aware that it exists. And yet we're told that this Russian military exercise must inevitably be leading to a full-fledged invasion. Um, now, I'm not saying that Putin is a great person or that I would want to live in Russia under his rule. But, you know, it is true what he said there about the military exercise and how the current exercises are on his borders. And there really isn't much evidence at all at this point that I'm aware of that the, Russia does plan to launch a full-scale invasion of the kind that is being prophesied and of the kind that the, uh, Biden, the president, said was definitely going to happen uh, beyond the leaks that we get out of Western intelligence agencies and uh, the kind of innuendo and rumor that a lot of Western America, uh, Western and U.S. officials seem to constantly be peddling. Um, so, is the U.S. or is Biden like manufacturing a panic here and, and deliberately? There seems to be some intentionality behind it. That's for sure. Uh, how did it become such a dominant issue? Well, it's because that the U.S. kept putting out these warnings starting really in earnest in uh, December about a supposedly imminent uh, invasion uh, that happened to kind of coincide with the seemingly scheduled Russian military exercise that was going to be happening anyway. Um, so what will be the consequence for all the people who are, who are prophesying such an imminent threat if it doesn't come to pass? Probably nothing. Probably people will just move on and ignore that it ever happened. Um, so anyway, that's a, just a bunch of things to bear in mind about the uh, current kind of color of the media coverage on this subject. And uh, again, I would uh, urge you to watch that press conference from Friday with Zelensky. Uh, if you haven't, it's pretty easy to find uh, on Google. Okay, I'm uh, going to take a couple of callers. Let's see here. All right, uh, for Revolution, go ahead. You have to unmute. Hey, Michael. Hey. How are you tonight? I'm okay. How are you? Hey, are you? I'm fine. Are you seated? I have some devastating news to deliver to you. Oh, boy. You might want to be seated. Really? Uh, yeah. I'm standing up right now. I'm actually pacing around, which I sometimes do on these calls, but I'll try to keep myself erect. Yeah, so, so the daughter of former President Clinton and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton uh, thinks that anybody on Substack is a grifter. She's been labeled a grifter by the grifterist herself, Chelsea Clinton. I just wanted really? to Really? She said that? that? Yeah. You didn't see that tweet the other day? It's amazing. No, I, uh, <laughs> I took him up one of my uh, yearly or twice yearly uh, Twitter uh, breaks the past uh, week or so because I feel like 
That should be well, done on occasion to clear one's mind. So I didn't happen to see that, but I need to look that up. I mean, she should have. She should get a Substack herself. Well, yeah. I mean, it's hard to be the child of a former president and presidential candidate and get a six hundred thousand dollar no show job at NBC and then call other people grifters, but. Anyway, I'm just trying to be a little funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I don't know. Maybe I should I should write a subsec about her grifting allegation and kind of <laughs> goad her into responding. I'll probably get a flood of new subscriptions. I'll even throw some anti-vax denialism in there, whatever that means. I mean, that, that just means oh, not, not that just means not following a lockstep with whatever the main talking points of the day are. It has nothing to do with whether you're personally vaccinated. But anyway, yeah, but. you better not mention truckers in Canada because then she'll really lose her mind. But <laughs> anyway, hey, you know this this Ukraine thing's a little a little scary, honestly, because you know. I think it's, frankly, in my opinion, to my eyes, one of the closest times we've come to war with Russia, and and the rhetoric is just really aggressive. You know, what's interesting is is uh, Biden had that press conference, you know, a week and a half ago, where he's kind of had some nuance about the conversation and the Russia issue, and then the media jumped on him, kind of like they did after. You know the uh, the Afghanistan pullout, and yeah. really kind of pushed on him hard. And he he did a little bit of a fold, actually not a little bit, kind of a substantial fold, and is really escalating tensions right now. And it's really, uh, it, it it frankly scares the shit out of me. Yeah, well, I mean, he he, he gave mixed signals, right? He said on the right. one hand that he that it's inevitable that Putin will invade. Right, but on the other hand, it could yeah. just be a quote minor incursion. So the U.S. would then thereby calibrate its reaction according to whatever the magnitude of the invasion is, which is obviously true, and that's going to happen regardless. But right. it was seen as giving us, you know, a supposedly a green light to to Putin to invade, which is just nonsense. But you're right; it was it's the same it was the same dynamic with Afghanistan, where the U.S. where U.S. media are the ones that get access to these press conferences or are able to pose direct questions to the president, uh, they think that they're being, you know, really challenging and adversarial and, and bold <laughs> by asking questions that are always have embedded within them, you know, interventionist or hawkish assumptions. But because they ask them like stridently or, or maybe even rudely, they think that they're, they're doing like a <laughs> profound journalistic feat, which is just uh, BS. The, the one time that I was able to talk to Biden directly over the course of the 2020 campaign, you know, I tried to take the opposite tack. So I asked him about, at the time, were uh, his really kind of misleadingly evolving uh, recollections of what his role was in the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, and he, in real time with me, talking to me, invented a whole new explanation, insisting that he was somehow opposed to the war that he advocated for and voted for and helped kind of, you know, bring into effect with his role on the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that's brilliant. That sounds about like how any Democrat would react to a question of, of their previous behavior on on warmongering subjects. But um, I'm on a bike ride. I'm maybe a little road noise behind me right now. I'm trying to get to some Oh, wow. I'm, I'm impressed with your ability to multitask. I... I haven't I haven't tried one I haven't tried doing a call in while riding a bike, but maybe I'll uh, give it a shot. It's 
It's not. The hardest part is trying to keep the noise down so that you're not giving a bunch of feedback to the mic. But <laughs> where are you bike riding? If I can, may ask. I gotta run to the grocery store and grab something to make dinner. Oh, okay. So, are you yeah. in? Uh, yeah, and you're in Denver. I am in Denver. No, all right, well, correct. But yeah, you know. A lot of anyway. I, I, I think I think you're I think you're right. Sorry, go ahead. Tactics to kind of improve their poll numbers, and if you look at it just from that perspective, you kind of understand why Biden's doing this. All presidents have done it. Clinton did it during the the uh, Lewinsky scandal stuff and the the impeachment trial uh, went after Iraq, and uh, certainly Bush spent his whole his whole tenure as president. Uh, uh, going into militaristic endeavors to boost his well, and, and Trump, tr- Trump launched the um, the assassination strike against uh, Soleimani in the midst of his impeachment trial. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. But it seems this one's a little different. This one's more media driven than than those were. Um, so, what do you think? Like, I guess how sh- how can we handle this, and how can we push back on it as as people who I think are inherently anti uh, anti war, I certainly am. I believe you are for the most part yeah, as yeah. well. Um, what like what's the pushback on this? What's the proper pushback? I guess to use the uh, podcast name of Aaron McKay's pod, podcast. Well, I mean, I think one thing to do, which you see happening on the right to some degree, is to kind of probe at the underlying assumptions in a way that. Uh, challenges the reflexive propensity of a lot of people to support some kind of engagement against Russia. You know, Tucker Carlson is on TV now, kind of challenging that logic, and you see a lot of people, you know, fretful about it because they think, and even uh, Chuck Todd posed a solemn question about it earlier today to uh, Portman, Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio, and, you know, showed him this clip of. Tucker Carlson on a monologue, um, which was kind of an innocuous clip. It was just, it, it just was wasn't gung ho pro intervention rhetoric, and so that was seen as really scary because maybe some segment of Republicans aren't as enthusiastic about pro war initiatives vis a vis Russia anymore. You know, so we have to really handle that according to Chuck Todd because it's dangerous for democracy or. Will embolden the insurrectionists on January sixth or something like that. Whoever knows what his you mean Chuck theory is. I like calling him Chuck Todd, like Matt Taibbi does. Yeah, yeah, I, I call him Sleepy Eyes <laughs> Chuck Todd. Um, uh, and you know, similarly on the on the left or in, I guess more among liberals, what even to some degree on the left actually. But what could be done, I think, or what ought to be done, is to try to pierce through a lot of the uh, domestic. Propaganda since 2016 that I think is inevitably kind of clouding or at least informing their perception about what is warranted here um, because they view Russia as this like great geopolitical menace. Um, and so like, the, the, the attitude has been totally inverted since, you know, Obama infamously, as everybody seems to recall now, you know, chided Romney in 2012 for uh, calling. Russia, the number one geopolitical foe of the U.S. Um, so I, was you know, one way, I think one way to, I think one way to, one way, yeah. I, so I think one way to address it is to kind of drill down into some of the kind of unexamined assumptions underlying the um, belief that the U.S. must be an active 
participant in some kind of forthcoming war. It's like there's a, a participant, really, in the case of the U.S., because if you listen to what Zelensky said, and if you listen to what other Ukrainians are reporting, the U.S. seems to be intent on uh, provoking uh, some kind of military confrontation that might have not otherwise happened, but for the U.S.'s interventionist role. Um, so that's kind of crazy. And yeah, I agree that it's a troubling situation because... Um, you know, one one inc- one incident or one accident or one miscommunication or one exchange of fire, and who knows what stuff could escalate to. Biden sending troops to um, Poland, uh, Poland and Romania. And actually, on the topic of military exercises, which I forgot to bring up in the introduction, you know, one thing Putin had also mentioned in his NBC interview last June was that NATO, which is the basically the U.S. in conjunction with NATO, so it's a U.S.-dominated exercise in uh, accordance with NATO, was doing military exercises in very close proximity to Russia in 2021. I mean, they were have, uh, staging kind of live fire drills in Estonia. Um, and yet, you know, that doesn't get coverage at all in the U.S., hardly. Um, right. So I, I, I think, you know, bringing some of that information to the force, people are aware of the context of this more thoroughly. That would be a good idea. Um, but, you know, who knows? Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the senators uh, love to brag how united they are in uh, supporting pro-war uh, measures vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. And to the extent that Republicans are criticizing Biden, it's that they're saying that he's an appeaser. Or uh, that he's not aggressive enough. So, I mean, it's kind of a bad uh, situation if you're somebody who, I guess, like us, is inclined not to see um, World War Three breakout. Um, all right, thank you, sir. Uh, Going to go to thank the you, next Michael. individual. Yep. All right, uh, Jenny. Hi, Michael. Are. Hey. I'm calling from Colorado too. Oh, maybe you two should uh, get together for coffee, platonically. <laughs> he had a uh, he had some good comments. <laughs> um, I do think Biden is agi- agitating for a war, and um, mm-hmm. I personally think that things are going so badly domestically that he just perceives this as an easy way to divert everybody's attention from COVID failures and the inflation rate and just problems that are kind of caving in on his head around his personal life. I mean, these books that have been written lately, The Laptop from Hell by Miranda Devine, that was just published. And I just think, you know, the the level of hypocrisy around these calls. Remember when Trump called Zelensky and everybody went crazy and Alexander Vindeman was reporting as a whistleblower and it was all just secret, secret, hush, hush, and we have to see the transcripts. And it's like, you know, the level of hypocrisy on... People just didn't go crazy. They impeached him over it. Anyway, go ahead. Exactly. For only the third time in American history and then to be followed by a fourth, but that's another subject. Well, and this whole week as this thing has just kind of built throughout the week, I just keep seeing his smug little face. I mean, Vindeman, you know, who was just so lauded and he had the book deal and he's doing all the talk shows and he saved democracy and whatnot. And it's like, you know, can anybody be bothered to ask if this is a wag the dog situation? I think it is. That's what it looks like. That's what it smells like. And I would like to see the transcript of that call. I mean, Jake Tapper himself reported that 
that Biden used the word that the Russians were going to sack sack Kiev. I mean, yeah, you yeah. Know? Did you hear well, that? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, and the thing is, no, I didn't say, I didn't hear that. Hear that? I have to. I should look that up because, as I, I mentioned, I took a little bit of a news break earlier this week. Oh. Um, but um, actually, seeing the transcript of this particular call would be much more consequential than seeing the transcript of the call that everybody was demanding it for in 2019 with Trump. I mean, that was just about kind of petty, you know, uh, attempts to maybe recruit Ukraine to kind of investigate a political rival. I mean, we don't have to relitigate that entire thing. I think it was definitely overblown. But even if there was impropriety there, the, the the scale of what's happening right now, which is a potential a potentially resulting in war, is much more important to get the full detail of this transcript on. You would think, and yet there doesn't seem to be comparable demands. Um, similarly, you know, when Trump uh, bombed uh, Iran uh, or killed Soleimani with a drone strike uh, during his first impeachment episode, and I think it was January two thousand twenty, yeah. Um, immediately you saw a huge chorus of people asserting with total certainty that it was a Wide the Dog episode. And maybe there was some Wide the Dog element there. I mean, it's plausible, but... I think the world is a better place with that man gone, personally. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but there could still potentially be a Wide the Dog element there. But the point is, regardless of whether there was... That same question could very much be posed now, and it's just not. Um, despite yeah. the stakes even be, being even higher, if we're if if what's being foretold does come to pass, which is that this will be the largest conflict in uh, Europe since uh, World War II. I mean, so maybe there is a political component, but nobody seems to be moved to even raise the question, as you mentioned. Yeah, <clears throat> that's also, the problem I, mean, I see with it. And also, I mean, I'm not sure. I think there there might be a wagon dog component, as I said, but I think it seems like a bit of an overreading to kind of tie this causally to you know books coming out that maybe reflect poorly on Biden or um, assert that it's just total cynical political machination um, because you know Biden did run in 2020 pledging to get tougher on Russia. That's what the Democratic base was demanding, right? That's what the Democratic presidential candidates in 2022, or sorry, 2020, were t- competing with one another to demonstrate how tough they could be on Putin. Um, Biden was selling himself as somebody who was going to, you know, stem the, t- the tide of, you know, rising authoritarianism around the world, and Putin was cited as example number one of that. Uh, and so I think there is probably an ideological dimension uh, that is operative here, more uh, probably more so, really, which is even more dangerous than uh, any kind of wag the dog component. But I don't deny that that could be a that could be a factor. Well, I do think it's been interesting that when I was a young mom in the early '90s, it was all my progressive friends who were anti-vaxxers, and now they've all become you know neocons, and it's the conservatives who are questioning the vaccine and are are hesitant to to jump into a a political skirmish with Russia. So, you know, it's yeah, just a, a lot of upside down oh. craziness right now. Yeah, there are a lot of ironies in how stuff. I mean, the more I mean, I don't want to make it seem like I'm a wise old man or anything, but the more you stick around, it seems <laughs> the more you see kind of the arbitrariness and 
how different partisan patterns are sorted um, and that they can change on a dime in terms of positions and beliefs um, you know in the span of just a couple of years and it just seems uh, often arbitrary and random so that's why if I can do anything to be maybe a remedial influence it's to at least tr- maintain or strive to maintain a semblance of consistency on some things at least in terms of kind of underlying principles or kind of habits of mind yeah well I guess we'll see how it turns out I I don't think we're going to see a war that's just my gut feeling but you know we will yeah, see I, mean, I, 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 I tend to agree with you although who knows what the could potentially be provoked with now these new deployments that the US is sending to kind of neighboring countries and you know it just takes one miscommunication like I said or some flare up that's unforeseen to, for stuff to, to spiral yeah. Um, all right. Uh, thanks, Jenny. Going to go Thank to uh, Carol. Carol, go ahead. You have to unmute. Sorry. Hi. Hey. Hi. Um, yes. Well, first of all, I wanted to um, say that I appreciate your reporting on the um, the aftermath of the George Floyd protests last summer. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that still gets cited all the time to me and brought up just because it was so... Uh, <laughs> so few people seemed to have any interest in doing it, which was, even though it was fairly simple uh, journalistic work, which is just to walk around and talk to people and chronicle and document things. Um, so, yeah, it shouldn't, have, it shouldn't have been such a major accomplishment to have done it, but, you know, I guess I'll take it. Yeah, well... Yeah, I definitely appreciate it. I think it was, you know, somebody actually talking to people whose businesses were ruined and just, you know, going to report the devastation that happened. So, yeah, I appreciate it. But um, regarding this Ukraine matter, I really don't know what to make of it. I, I don't know, you know, if this is something that they had planned, that the Biden administration had planned to do to sort of um, take on Russia uh, during their um, his term in office, or if it was just something that happened spontaneously. I, I have a feeling that it's something that they have planned to do. And I'm wondering um, how much the Nord Stream 2 pipeline has to do with it. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I'm not sure if I mentioned this on a previous uh, call-in episode, but I've I've tweeted about it anyway. But there was a really telling uh, piece of reporting, or tidbit anyway, in the Financial Times in November 2020 after Biden was elected where an anonymous Western diplomat was quoted. I mean, who who really knows who that conceivably may be, but it was high level enough of a person to be quoted in the Financial Times. And... This person was asked about the incoming Biden administration's foreign policy posture, and he or she said the following. Quote, there is a hatred for Russia amongst Biden's team that is really amazing. It's just not rational. It's very emotional. Or it is not just rational. It's also very emotional. So he was, so that's a foreign diplomat observing the incoming Biden administration and seeing that there's this seething uh, emotional hatred for Russia that is going to manifest in the form of 
policy. Now, just a few months later, or um, you know, around this time, that first that initial uh, military exercise that Russia conducted in the same vicinity, or in a similar vicinity, uh, in the proximity of Ukraine, was was building up. So, military exercises tended tend to occur, at least in the U.S., on a repeating basis. You know, biannually, whatever. So the U.S. probably had some good indication that the same thing could be happening again because the, there's still, you know, a conflict in Ukraine in the east. And, you know, it's not as though that had been settled. So I think, you know, it's definitely within the realm of possibility that they knew that there would be a subsequent training exercise and that they would have the opportunity now to portray it in the most kind of alarmist possible terms. Uh, you saw leaks to the to the media in um, December of last year, telling about how supposedly an invasion was going to be imminent on the basis of this military buildup, with really out, with, without really any corroborating evidence other than the fact of the buildup, which had already happened the year prior. Um, so, I mean, I would I don't have proof that it was planned, but I don't think it's a it's an unfair surmise, right? I mean, I would love to see. More reporting done on that uh, by, by journalists who have access, um, but you know I doubt you're going to see that because they're mostly focused on complaining that Biden isn't aggressive enough. Just like they were complaining that he wasn't, you know, he was uh, he botched Afghanistan and that Trump wasn't aggressive enough on Russia or with North Korea. I mean, this is always the tack taken by at least the elite corporate media, uh, who they kind of pontificate as being, you know, holding power to account, but really what they're doing is just parroting all the kind of stale pro-intervention maxims under the guise of adversarial journalism. I know, it's really discouraging the the rhetoric from the media and from various politicians. Like, it sounds like you watched Meet Meet the Press today, and I did also... And uh, Senator Menendez was on there, and I could not believe what oh, he was saying. He was, like, crazy. Um, just, I don't know. I, I, it was, like, pure evil or something. Uh, I don't. Was know. that Meet the Press, or was that a different show? I think it was I Meet the Press. I, I might have missed that. Okay, I'll, I'll look it up. Um, yeah, I, mean, he I saw... Was with, he was on with Senator Rich of Idaho. So they were Okay, I think it might have been a different show, but I'll, I'll look it up. Um... So I tried to watch all of those for one second. But yeah, go go ahead. Okay, so it was yeah, Menendez. So anyway, but you you mentioned the Biden administration and their hatred for Russia. I mean, especially like Victoria Nuland. Okay, it was so, CNN CNN State of the Union, so I'll watch that. <clears throat> it was? Yeah, it was CNN. <laughs> Not that it matters. I mean these all all these shows are essentially the same. Okay. I thought I, I thought it was Meet the Press. But um Hmm. So anyway, uh, yeah, Victoria Newland. So she, um, and and that's another thing. I there's so many things to say about this 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 issue. So there's so many things to say. I mean, you know that she has talked. I've seen two press things that she's done regarding Ukraine and Russia, and both times she has mentioned Build Back Better. Now I'm not sure why she's saying that. Do you <laughs> do you understand? Um, why that? What that has to do exactly with Ukraine and Russia? Huh. Well, I actually watched her today on um, 
Face the Nation said the CBS morning show. I mean, these, these shows are all clones of one another. Um, so they kind of are all one indistinct mass. Um, but no, I didn't. She, I don't think she mentioned it on that appearance. No, she did. I, 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 I did watch her on that. And um, but these these were like press uh, announcement things or something, maybe from the State Department, yeah. where she was talking about um, policy and what they were doing. I mean, the, the second time was about how they were going to try to reach out to China to try to persuade Russia from attacking Ukraine, and that's another absurd. Yeah. Uh, okay. So on. On January 12th, uh, she tweeted from her official account, Russia has created this crisis out of whole cloth and will have to justify to its people why it is stoking a potentially very bloody and costly conflict for Russia rather than focusing on its own citizens' health on, and on R- Russia's own significant challenges and building it back better. Yes. Yeah, it's creepy. I mean, I guess she's saying that they should be focused on, you know, post-pandemic development or something. Um but yeah, it is a very bizarre. Well, is she trying to appeal to, to to Russian young people or something? Um, do you know what you I mean? Know, yeah, you know it's a good question. I'm just kind of going uh, off my. Uh, I haven't seen that. I think maybe it's a way to identify Russia as not taking part in this kind of broader Western effort to, quote, build back better, which is became an international slogan. Like, the, the Conservative Party in the U.K. uses it, uh, the U.S. uses it, uh, using other kind of, these kind of international development uh, economic forums. And so maybe her saying that Russia isn't prioritizing, quote, building back better, she's creating, like, a rhetorical distance between Russia and the rest of the West. I don't know, that's just one... Theory, but you know Victoria Newland, the fact that she's even in a kind of uh, prominent role at this time is kind of a bad signal because, as everyone should <laughs> recall, I mean she was a uh, she got caught facilitating essentially a coup in uh, 2014 in Ukraine. Um, so like, why is she now making these official pronouncements? I mean that's not a great sign. Um, I think it's like yeah. giving a finger to Russia. I mean, you know, it's like f you to well, Russia. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because like they they need to they, they according to that anonymous diplomat I mentioned before they have and you know according to anybody with a brain who can observe how the Democratic Party has behaved recently they do have an emotional reaction to Russia now for domestic political reasons and are seeking kind of revenge um, and then it's not enough it doesn't help with the Republicans uh, basically taking out a, a posture that is critical of Biden only from the standpoint of. Complain that he's not being belligerent enough. I mean, Joni Ernst has been going crazy, similar to Menendez on TV and such, calling Biden an appeaser, which is like, okay, think of it. Can you learn a different historical analogy and stop talking about Neville Chamberlain? I mean, read, a, I, read another it's, book. It's so ridiculous what the Republicans are doing. And it really sounded like Chuck Todd was upset that there's this division in the Republican Party, like the country isn't totally all united against Russia. Yeah, and did you did you notice when uh, Chuck Todd was posing a question to Portman on Meet the Press? He only he, he did mention the Zelensky press conference, but he also he he mentioned one narrow snippet of it, which is that Zelensky cl- complained about or Zelensky raised the point that why would the U.S. if it's going to sanction Russia do so after an invasion? Why wouldn't it do so now? And he wasn't necessarily even calling for sanctions, although I think he does support that. But he's making the point that the sanctions 
were they to be leveled, wouldn't necessarily be to help Ukraine, because they would already be invaded at that point. Uh, it would be to serve some domestic American purpose, right? So, because if you wanted to prevent an invasion and you thought sanctions could prevent an invasion, which I don't think they even really can, there's no evidence for that. Um, but anyway, if you thought that they could, you would do it preemptively, right? But they're not doing it preemptively. Um, and so that was Zelensky's point. But Chuck Todd distilled that into the, a very narrow question uh, that he posed to Portman of why isn't the U.S. doing what Zelensky wants and leveling these sanctions preemptively. Um, and he also omitted the entire other critique that I mentioned at the top of this that Zelensky offered about how the U.S. media, which presumably would include Chuck Todd, of, uh, that they're stoking this panic and that they're not giving a balanced depiction of the situation, right? So it was a whole, that, that whole thing was a joke with Chuck Todd, who's not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. Yeah. And, you know, I'm kind of concerned about Zelensky's safety, actually, at this point, because, uh, you know, he's not towing the line that he's supposed to be towing. I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, he's, he's supposed to be, uh, like our guy. And yeah. he's, he's disputing what our president is saying. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering if he's kind of expendable at this point or. And he would have every reason in the world to not dispute the American line if he believed that he was actually at imminent risk of being overthrown. I mean, he could actually face, you know, death if that were to happen. So why, why would he be, dis- why would he be disputing this alarmism from the U.S. I mean, he has the most reason of anybody to be alarmed, and yet this is the tack he's taking, which I think ought to really be underscored in terms of how people are viewing the supposed imminence of this threat. I think he should, if I were to give him advice, I'd tell him to keep talking about it, to keep acting like and telling the world what reality is. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I think that would save him, but who knows uh, what will happen. Yep. But All right. Well, uh, thank you, Carol. Yeah. And uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, listening. And uh, like I mentioned before, I'm going to ha- – I'm working on getting a guest for uh, sometime this coming week uh, that has more direct experience with Ukraine. And uh, we'll have an additional discussion then. So uh, tune in and have a great night. Bye-bye.